Um, that's fun. Shout out to Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Uh, Marcel the Shell with the shoes on that's is a movie that actually away. exists. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. That in that <laughs> really took me by surprise that that was your shout out. I'm sorry. The NBA is all having a score. Put some respect. Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about hanging out with your smartest and funniest friends who have watched a lot of 2022 movies. I'm Zach Pockleb. And I'm Amanda Luberto. And obviously, we're going to talk about our top five movies of the year. It's a little bonus episode. But first, we have a return guest. And we've only ever had one guest on this pod, so you know who it is. <laughs> Avid movie watcher herself, third member of our film group chat. Welcome to the show, our good friend, Maya. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be the one and only Blind Spotters guest and to be coming back for round two. Uh, obviously, we're talking about movies in 2022. So before we start talking about those movies, a couple things. First of all, what was movie watching like for you guys in 2022? If 2021 was kind of a return to theaters, what was it like for you in 2022? Uh, Amanda, we'll start with you. I think that 2022 is definitely the year I had to reprioritize movies because in 2020 and 2021, it was there were so few things going on besides like sitting at home and watching movies or like being able to go back to the theater and watch movies. Like, this is the year that like your social calendar really ramped up again, your concerts, people visiting, I'm visiting, like everything kind of like fully returned to normal. And so I really had to like put in, not the effort, because it's still just like having fun and watching movies, but I had to be like, okay, I have a Thursday night free, don't make plans, go see a movie because you want to see that movie. So I think that that was more what 2022 was about for me and watching movies. Nice. What about you, Maya? Yeah, it was similar for me. I watched 137 like new to me movies, which was less than I did in 2021, kind of for that same reason of just like. 2021, I spent a good chunk of that year living with my parents um, and just, you know, sitting in my room and watching movies. And 2022, I was back in New York um, and it felt like the world had really opened back up again. So I was running around a lot more and really trying to balance it. But I think I saw like 30 movies in theaters in 2022, which is really good for me. I really made use of my AMC Studs A-list membership um, and was going to the theaters all the time. I was seeing movies multiple times in theaters, which we'll talk about a little more uh, once we get into our list. But that was really fun for me, like seeing movies multiple times with friends um, and just spending a lot of time in, in the movie theater, which I really love. Love that. I think for me, it was uh, both a pulling back and uh, pushing forward in a different way. Like I watched 15 less new to me movies in 2022. So it put me at like 240. But then I also got the Criterion channel this year. So it was a lot of just flipping on an old movie that I'd never heard of or like really getting some of those big releases off the to watch list so i feel like it, the movie knowledge or the movie experience was deeper i i was traveling a lot so you know the 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 plane movies were, were strong a nice return to i think what our movie watching form will probably be like mm -hmm. going forward right like yeah uh learning how to balance you know being a person and like seeing your friends and getting outside of the house and also being like you know what i am gonna watch this third movie tonight um <laughs> Maybe that just goes for me, but you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Something that I noticed about movie watching in 22 was that 
the people in my life wanted to see movies with me, which was very sweet and something I really love. I am a huge proponent of seeing movies by yourself because I'm like a very antsy movie watcher. I like a very particular experience. This doesn't mean I don't love spending time with my friends and seeing things with them. But I had like a few people reach out to me throughout the year and be like, I know you're going to see this movie anyway, and I want to see it. Can I see it with you? And I'd be like, sure. Um, So I saw like more movies with people in the theater this year than I think I had in a long time. Speaking of which, Zach and I are two for two now and Zach coming to New York and us going and seeing the latest November Marvel release on opening <laughs> night. So I don't know what's on deck for 23, but we've, we've got to do it again. I also want to add that uh, 2022 was the year that uh, multiple people in my life added a letterbox account to their lives yeah. and told me about it. Um, so for me personally, big win. So that's how movie watching was like for us in 2022. Time to get to the main events of the podcast. Uh, our 2022 favorites. But before we get to that, really quick, just so you guys understand what we're doing, we're going to go through our top fives of the year, but we're excluding any that were nominated for the Oscars that happened this year. So like No Worst Person in the World or Drive My Car, anything that is outside of that award cycle and is in this current award cycle is fair game, even if it's something like Women Talking, which I think got released in January of 2023, Yeah, I think um, so. at least in places that are not Los Angeles and New York City. So we'll go five to one, but if there's any overlap, we'll adjust accordingly. Like if my number five is Amanda's number three, we'll wait to get to Amanda's third best movie of the year. But if Amanda and Maya both have a movie ranked like fifth that I have it ranked second, we might just get into it earlier. Um, and then afterward, we'll talk about other categories like our favorite scenes, favorite performances, etc. So with that, let's get into it. First up, Maya, we're going to start with your number five, starting off strong. Yes. I'm excited to talk about this film. What was your fifth best movie of 2022? Yeah, my number five movie of the year um, was Turning Red, the new Disney Pixar release that came out, I want to say in like late winter, early spring of 2022. Oh my God, I love this movie. It If you don't know, it's basically um, a story about a young girl. She's um, the daughter of an Asian immigrant in China and it's in Canada. I'm sorry. She's in Canada. It's set in like the 90s or early aughts. And it's about just like her experiences with growing up and, and going through puberty. She is a big time fangirl of a boy band. She has a difficult relationship with her mother. Um, she's obsessed with her friends. And it is the first time I feel like I've really, truly seen myself on screen. My kind of letterbox review of the film after I watched it was that this was a really big year for me, the daughter of an Asian immigrant mother watching movies about daughters of Asian immigrant mothers, as we'll talk about with some of our movies later. But yeah, I just thought this movie was phenomenal. It is smart and funny and emotional. The animation, it felt really different and new for Pixar and was really fun and inventive. And I love seeing our stories um, told on screen in such a fun way. And I just like also have to give the biggest shout out to Phineas and Billie Eilish for absolutely crushing the boy band music. Literally the invented band in the movie Four Town is like actually actively incredible and so good. I wish they were a real band. I wish I could go to their concerts. I would be there screaming like all of these 11 year old girls. It was just amazing. It was so fun from start to finish. I like cried my eyes out. I laughed and I would recommend it to anyone. I did so much research after watching that movie if that band was real and (laughs) I like couldn't believe that it wasn't like I just kept doing research because I was like no but like 
like where is the this band? <laughs> like what am I is it a, like a K-pop band? Like what am I missing? They just it's fake, but yeah, that movie was really beautiful. You were the first person to suggest it to me at least. I probably Zach as well, but you were on the train right away and you were like this is the best movie Pixar's made in a really long time. And I agree. I loved like every time she was emotional, she would feel like everyone, you know, you feel like everyone can see you all the time. And she turns into a giant thing that you can't stop looking at. And it's just, it's so smart and just really lovely. And I love the the color palette of it was, was really stunning as well. Yeah, this movie rocks. I think it's, you know, obviously the best Pixar entry of 2022 for sure. I think four town goes into the pantheon of like fake bands in movies that rock so that goes up with like the wonders from that thing you do protozoa from xenon <laughs> um power line from the goofy movie but yeah I, th- I think this movie rocks i think uh this was my favorite animated movie of 2022 yeah um, and i love this pick for you um great start to the pod amanda let's go to your number five getting some documentary love Yeah, so I thought I would continue the trend from last year where my number five spot is a documentary I watched that I can't stop thinking about. So my number five is the movie Fire of Love, also available on Disney Plus, and it is the love story about two volcanologists who happen to fall in love and then they're like, oh, I also love the study of volcanoes and they become like volcano experts And the really cool thing about the movie is that, you know, it's something like 90 something percent of the footage is their footage that they had discovered. And you really find throughout the movie that they were some of the people that really put what we know about volcanoes like on the map, which is so funny. Like they were creating some of the like original drawings that go into your science textbooks and like the the photos that go in, you know, every photo of a volcano you've probably seen can be traced back to the two of them. And the movie is just it's light, but it's moving. But the and just the visuals to me were so unbelievable that someone could capture that. And then it stayed good for so long that now I could watch it in 2022. I couldn't look away. And it was just so visually beautiful and has further drawn the intrusive thought that I want to stick my hand in magma so badly. (laughs) 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 I think it would feel so gooey and good. Um, I would die. but uh (laughs) Your hand would also turn to goo. Uh, I got to see this at a National Geographic like free screening of the film in Central Park. What and a it dream! Was, oh my god, it was incredible. And like, especially like you know, once the sun set and it was just like dark in the park, and this giant screen was just like lit up with the like glowing red lava. It was like you said, absolutely stunning visuals. And I was also like so overwhelmed with like their love story and how it like ended I was like shedding little tears like in the park like I was like wow this is so beautiful Um, but yeah it was like such a special experience to see it and I'm so glad you have it on your list this doc is so special because it makes you both care about volcanoes but also realize you're watching a love story and I think part of that is uh, Miranda July's narration is like so so tender it was like a weepy eyed narration the whole time in in a good way um, I can't wait for the eventual Wes Anderson adaptation of this film yes. starring like 
Francis McDormand or Vicky Crepes and like I don't know pick pick your fighter for the guy um, Willem Dafoe yes that's it right there that's so good <laughs> all right Zach what's your number five uh, my number five is Tar I think this is probably the best made movie of the year even though it's not my number one favorite this is Todd Field's movie starring Kate Blanchett playing a conductor who is not a real person despite the fact that you just come away from the movie wondering if Lydia Tarr is in fact a conductor of much adoration and then controversy. I think this movie is so uh, immersive and specific. It's mind-bending. It's disgusting. It's beautiful. It begs for multiple viewings because of the turn it takes in the last half hour, which if you haven't watched it, I won't spoil it for you. I think it's on Peacock now. I think it's a movie that is about right now, but not in a really annoying way. Mm-hmm. Like social media is a factor in it. Cancel culture ugh, is a factor in it. But in a real examination of like what that means and what it means for a person to fall from grace and for a person in power and uh, how they handle that power. I, if anything, come to this movie for Blanchett's performance because it's monstrous and hilarious i think this is a good double feature with like phantom thread because of the way they kind of look at a master of their craft who probably sucks as a person it's probably the funniest ending of the year um as well like i actively laughed and i was like i think we're supposed to laugh here uh, I-, I love tar and i think um it's going to be one that holds up like for years yeah like you said it's it's definitely a movie that it's for audiences that want to think about movies. And obviously, since all three of us are here, like we like thinking and talking about movies. I just definitely saw it on a day when I was maybe not as mentally prepared to think about movies. And I kind of texted Zach after and I was like, I don't understand anything that just happened. <laughs> uh, but like you said, it also, I think it, it really begs a rewatch and I'm thrilled it's on Peacock now and I'm very excited to revisit it. This movie didn't make my list because it made your list and I knew we'd be talking about it. So I wanted to diversify a little bit, but I mean, this movie is absolutely stunning. Your comment about it being a good double feature with Phantom Thread, I think is spot on. And your love of Phantom Thread, I think also really speaks to your love of Tar. Obviously, Kate Blanchett, aka Lydia Tar, is the big takeaway. But I was also mesmerized by the actress playing her wife. I think <laughs> that there's like very few counterparts to Lydia Tar in the movie, but they're all extremely solid. And they feel like they're in the same world. And they make her feel more real instead of like this fake pedestal type person. So I think like the movie is really rounded, despite the fact that she's like the clear takeaway of the film. And something that I think is really interesting is I was watching a Actors on Actors with Kate Blanchett, and she had made a comment that originally the script was that the conductor was a man. And that is a very different movie. That's a movie I actually don't want to see because it's too obvious and too cliche and too cancel culture. But I think that this takes this takes the approach of what does that actually mean in society when it's about power and when it's about abuse of power rather than making sure certain genders are in check with other genders. And I think that she played that so good. The, the actor uh, who played Lydia Tarr's wife, like Lydia Tarr's real person, <laughs> is Nina Haas. And yeah, provides that great counterpoint. Yeah, Kate Blanchett is the thing about this movie that you got to go see. But also time is the thing, you know, time is the essential yeah. piece of interpretation. You cannot start without her. 
It's also incredibly memeable. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is also incredibly <laughs> memeable. I love any piece of content conducting that Lydia Tart, part of my pun, is a real human being. Um, let's move on to Amanda's number four, um, which is probably one of the movies of the year. Um, and I'm excited to hear us all talk about it because that's why we're doing a podcast. Anyway, Amanda, what is your number four movie of 2022? My number four movie is The Banshees of Inishirin. Since it's been on HBO Max, I think I've seen it three times. Keep watching this movie. It's so subtle, yet so Irish, which is not subtle at all. I think Colin Farrell is delivering one of his best pieces of performance ever. The way he is just hurt instantly and cannot understand, but it comes from like a place of adoring love and he can't understand why people keep leaving him it's really really lovely and jenny the donkey is just such a delight and the movie on top of it is beautiful to look at it's the countryside of 1920s ireland and i was like already googling like where did they film this how can i go here at the wine bar that i work at the other day we were talking about this movie and i was like i just keep repeating the line where he's like you used to be nice, and now you don't talk to me. And you know what that makes you? Not nice. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's so simple, but like, if you have anyone like leave you, that's what it feels like. We're like, mm-hmm. Amanda, next time we get into an argument, I'll be like, are we having a role like? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, this, this movie is great. I think it's such an, it's an actor showcase, but also a Martin McDonough showcase. Um, it's such a tightly written but relaxed script and pacing of the movie like you think it's slow but these conversations just you know add layer and layer and layer to devastation uh i don't know how colin farrell's eyebrows do that <laughs> i think barry barry keown is so special oh, uh, the scene like, of him by this the is river the least yeah this is the least charismatic i've seen him in a minute and it's so heartbreaking and hilarious and Carrie Condon yes. absolutely just yes. destroys everyone in her path. Yes. Because she knows when Mozart was alive. Damn right. <laughs> Obviously, like this is kind of like the point in hope with all movies, but I really love that something that felt seemed on the surface so removed from me, men in Ireland in the 1920s, felt so honest and so real and so relatable. Like I understood every single character and I could like see something of myself and my experiences in almost every single character and was just absolutely blown away by it. I really loved it. I also, I had no idea you'd seen it so many times since Amanda. I thought you'd just seen it the once, but I'm excited to rewatch it because I, I, it definitely seems like something that has a lot more to give the, the more time you spend with it. I certainly love this Martin McDonough more than like three billboards, Martin McDonough. And part of that is not his fault. I think three billboards kind of took on a life of its own, but I particularly love the scene where he gets drunk and gives a whole spiel about being nice. And I think that kind of intertwines with another movie that we all love from 2022 that we'll get into later. Colin Farrell had one hell of a year and we'll definitely get into uh, some more Colin Farrell as this list goes on. But let's keep moving on. Uh, My number four is uh, Maya's number one and Maya's number four is Amanda's number two. I'm just going to get pause right there for listeners so you can kind of register that. So we are moving on to Maya's number three, um, an underappreciated summer blockbuster. Yeah. Maya was your third favorite movie of 2022. Yeah, my my number three movie of, of the year was Nope. I absolutely yep. friggin' loved Nope. I saw it twice in theaters. And as Zach and Amanda both know, I am kind of a scary movie 
novice. Um, I, I would say part of my movie journey in the last couple years has been realizing that like I can handle more than I thought uh, in scary movies um, or movies that are marketed as scary. But I think really, nope, first of all, despite everything that Jordan Peele is known for is much more, I think, on the thriller side than an actual like horror or scary movie. And I was just absolutely floored by this film. The three of us are, are all people who who work in media. Um, and I think that not all films that are commentaries and, and media are always effective. But man, this one was. This as a takedown of what it means to elevate and put up things that are horrible and what we're willing to do for that really uh, hit home for me um, and really caused a lot of reflection on, on the work that I do and, and my place in, in this element of society. But I think any film that is like anchored by such incredible performances like Kiki Palmer and Daniel Kaluuya and The Love of My Life, Stephen Yeun, and can can make me think this hard while also having so much fun. Like so much of this movie is like, it's laugh out loud funny. It's exciting. It's big. There's big spectacle, but you're also nervous and scared in so many parts. I, I'm just like overwhelmed by like admiration and respect for him and his craft and what he does and the stories he's telling and the messages messages that he's putting out there. I think Nope was incredible. I don't think if there's a filmmaker working right now that has a chokehold on culture like Jordan Peele, mm -hmm. like a filmmaker making original stories, because I think anytime a Jordan Peele movie comes out, everybody goes into like the kind of dissecting mode that you see from like Marvel fans. Like, what does this mean? What was this a reference to? Um, what old horror movie is he kind of playing off of? Or what kind of expectations is he messing with? And I think he, he like captures the zeitgeist so well, either intentionally or unintentionally. I, I think everything he does is pretty intentional. Like a Jordan Peele movie is a genre of movie, I think at this point. Like we're three movies in and I think when a Jordan Peele movie is coming, it's an event. And I think it like not many other filmmakers have, have created for themselves. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's odd how this movie kind of went through award season with a whimper because I think Kiki Palmer is one of the most charming actors and gave one of the most charming both performances and media tours Absolutely. Uh, when, this, when this film came out. Uh, I think this is an underappreciated Daniel Kaluuya performance, but I'm always biased toward anything Daniel Kaluuya does. And um, just shout out to Kiki Palmer hitting the Akira slide um, in the climactic set piece of the film. Hell yeah. This was a really fucking excellent year for horror movies. And we will talk mm -hmm. about more of them later. But the way you were talking, Zach, about how Jordan Peele has become his own genre, he reminds me a lot of Stanley Kubrick in that way, where like every movie you know, whether it's Eyes Wide Shut or 2001 A Space Odyssey, like those movies aren't the same genre, but the genre is Kubrickian. That is the through line through them. And I think that Jordan Peele is ramping up to be someone like that, where you can't really compare Get Out and Nope, but there is also a tone through line. And that through line is Jordan Peele. And I think that he is an, a mesmerizing producer and director and writer who can do that he isn't making get out every single time and i don't want him to and i think some people expect him to but something he does so smart is i was like looking off screen for where the 
spaceship was going. Like he played with movement so well during that film that you don't have to have the spaceship on screen the whole time to know where it is because of how he designed it. It's really excellent. He is a student of film and that's so obvious in everything that he makes. And as three budding students of film, I fucking love it. Like, yeah. Keep I, it coming. I think, I, and I think what also differentiates him from maybe other auteurs is his movies make bank. Like I love Paul Thomas Anderson. PTA's movies aren't bringing in $120 million, mm-hmm. $170 million. But Jordan Peele is showing that you can do an original story that has this artistic bend and viewpoint and also entertain the shit out of you. And I think he's just, that's bank, man. The actor who plays Angel Torres stood out to me so much because Brendan Pereira, I think his name is, Jordan Peele knows how to pick him. There is a video of that actor winning an award and they play like his audition and it's very sweet and he's like freaking out and it's he like got it on the spot which is incredible and Jordan Peele like rewrote aspects of the character to better fit that actor a what an honor and uh, I just hope Daniel Kaluuya works with him for the rest of his life I will see anything the two of them make together and He just is really smart about the people he works with and we get to reap the benefits. He's got like a bunch of like charisma bombs on screen for this whole film, but every one of them just like sucks you in and you're so invested in everything they're doing, but they do such a good job of like balancing with each other and never overpowering each other. Like it's such a, everyone is so evenly matched in this film. It's not like one person actually runs away with the whole thing. Um, And it, it just worked so well. I, I love talking about Nope. I like want to watch it again right now. If that was the perhaps loudest horror release of 2022, I think, Amanda, uh, your number three was the most surprising and kind of the indicative example of like why horror is one of the few genres of film that like necessitates a theater release. What is your number three movie of 2022? This movie is definitely the word of mouth movie, I think, of the year. My number three movie is Barbarian. I was going to see it just because it looked cool. The poster looked fun. And I love seeing a horror movie in theaters. This is a very classic like 9 p.m. on a Tuesday kind of movie for me where I'm like, yeah, I got nothing else to do and I want to see it while it's there and I'll go see it, you know, whatever. I was like so blown away by this film. I think I texted you guys immediately. I've seen a million horror movies. After a while, you can kind of pick up on like, okay, they're going to play on this trope and like maybe this will happen or like, you know, it's going to be this sort of movie. There was not a second of this film where I knew what was going to happen next. And that is so great. It starts with Bill Skarsgård and after his work in It is sort of the person that you're like, oh, he's on screen. Something not good is going to happen. He's a bad guy. Like something scary is going to happen. And it begins with this theme that I've noticed in a lot of like modern horror movies of like the the rental horror where you're coming up to an Airbnb and there's an issue or like you're at an Airbnb and like someone's watching like there's something wrong with this rental home. And then it just takes a left turn and then another left turn and then it flies off the map and it just is so unbelievable. There's like a crash cut in the middle of the film that I literally started laughing out loud because I could not believe what I was watching. And then it just, you know, goes in so many directions. I think it is 
brilliant. It is the directorial debut of the director, which is unreal. I will see anything that he makes now because Barbarian was so good. It is my most like suggested movie of the year to anyone who just likes movies. Um, I bet the two of you could handle it, Zach, maybe in the daytime, but it's just worth seeing to see movies because it's just the most movie movie I think I watched all year. <laughs> More movie just say movie something, than there are some... some of the other movies we're going to talk about. <laughs> there's, a lo- there's a lot of movie movies, but uh, it just, I, there, again, like there just wasn't a minute where I was like, okay, then this will happen or whatever. Like I'm always thinking when I'm watching films and eventually I just had to give in and be like, I just don't know what's going to happen. So like, I just got to let it happen. The director's name is Zach Krager. I will say I've, I've heard the entire plot summary of this movie and I do have to say it feels pretty firmly in the not for me bucket. Um, (laughs) But I (laughs) love like as someone who loves talking about movies, I do love how much this was just like a phenomenon this year. It was, it was still kind of fun for me on the sidelines to like see it all over my Twitter feed and see everybody raving about it on Letterboxd and everyone was just, it was really cool to see how everyone was so like surprised by it. Like you said that it was just so unexpected and so fun. And I'm like, I, I really love that for everybody who experienced it. Um, maybe in like a couple years in the middle of the day on an iPad, like under a weighted blanket, I'll watch it. Um, but I, I can't say I'm dying too, but I'm very happy for everyone who loved it this year. For a complete 180, Zach, what's your next movie? <laughs> a movie that couldn't be less like a barbarian. Yeah, damn. Uh, <laughs> you know what? This podcast <laughs> contains multitudes. Um <laughs> Dude, that's so fucking funny. Um, <laughs> my number three is After Sun, um, the Paul Mescal vehicle um, written and directed by Charlotte Wells. Uh, this movie is quiet <laughs> and like so restrained and so heartbreaking and so sad. This movie is about a daughter reflecting on a holiday she took with her father when she was 11. Frankie Corio plays Paul Mescal's daughter. And they're in Turkey, just kind of having uh, like a little summer vacation. Paul Mescal's character is going through, just going through it as a 30-year-old who, whose life is not turned out maybe the way he thought. Um, and having a daughter at 19 years old. It's a movie that doesn't give you straight up answers, even though the answers are like laid out bare for you in terms of maybe what this movie is about or whose viewpoint it is. I think it's a beautifully shot movie. Uh, some of just the... Not only like the still images, but like the scenes it creates and like the framing it puts on the father and the daughter in this film is I'm trying to think of another word other than beautiful. Like it's pretty, it's colorful and like it's such a sharply written debut. I also support anytime Paul Mescal is dancing. This is tough, but like After Sun makes me feel the way listening to a Phoebe Bridgers song feels, (laughs) which is unfortunate for everyone involved. (laughs) The breakup of the century. I love Paul Mescal. He can kind of do no wrong in my eyes. He is someone that I will... I'm just interested in what he's doing. I need to see it. I can't emphasize how like special Paul Mescal's performance is in this. It's like it's such a soul-crushing movie without being manipulative, which mm. I feel like is a difficult balance to strike whenever you are trying to make a certain kind of drama. But again, I think Paul, because we're on a first-name basis now, uh, it's such an impressive way of like allowing these deep and significant emotions to kind of seep through his body without being like calling obvious attention to them. 
I would recommend it. It rules. Taking, I guess, not as big of a, a turn, but uh, we're going to go to Amanda, your number two, and Maya's number four. Uh, my number two movie of the year is The Fablemans. Again, I think I texted you like, I was like walking out of the theater still. Like, I hadn't even left the actual theater, and I was like, The Fablemans <laughs> is so good. <laughs> this movie's really, really beautiful. It's so special. If you've ever loved any Steven Spielberg movie that is in his like prime, you will love this movie. It's poised as a love story of making movies, but it is a love story of his family. And it is a very thinly veiled story of Steven Spielberg growing up. And I was in from the beginning because I love Paul Dano. And I was very excited to see him play a father in this movie because he's usually playing like a creepy little dude. And I was excited to see him just play like a guy. And he was really excellent. You know, the movie is very emotional about how much I love films and how much we see our lives on film and, you know, your passions and things like that. But also like as you grow up, how you see your parents is really different than how you see them as a child. And that's an appropriate growth. But you look back on things as an adult with your parents and maybe you think about them a little differently. And the realization that your parents are people is like the biggest crash to reality you have growing up, I think. And I think that this was his way of working, him being Steven Spielberg's way of working through that. And also it's fun and you get to watch him make movies as a kid and there's great content in Arizona, which of course I want to like see and like is so fun. And and he is really special to obviously the performance community in Arizona. I was nervous going into this movie because I haven't liked a Steven Spielberg movie in a while. And I was like, is this going to be overproduced and underthought and not really hit the nail on the head? And am I going to walk away being like, I see what he's trying to do. This wasn't really for me. And it was nothing like that. It was Jaws, Jurassic Park. It was everything from the very beginning. And it was great to see someone who's been clearly working through his relationship with his parents on screen for many, many decades make sort of like a final version of it. I thought you were going to say when you started your sentence of like, I was all in from the beginning and you were talking about Paul Dano. I thought you were going to say you were all in from the beginning because of the Arizona of it all. I mean, it definitely didn't hurt. It's so wild. And obviously these are two of the most excellent filmmakers uh, around, but that Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner wrote this like just while making West Side Story, also a banger of a film. Yes. Um, I think this year had a, a, a few self-reflective films from older filmmakers this year. Um, Empire of Light from Sam Mendes, Armageddon Time. I think Steven Spielberg's was like the least self-indulgent, even though there are moments where, he, you know, you have that doughy-eyed wonder that uh, he's so well known for. But it is a biting story. And I also just wanted to specifically shout out Chloe East, who comes in in the like last quarter of the movie like a fucking flamethrower in one of the funniest performances and funniest scenes of the year. Um, you know, as a person who grew up in the church, it kind of just, I know that person and, um, good for Sammy. Uh, yeah, the Fableman's rocks. Yeah, this was, so this was my, I had it at number four, but I loved it too. I was similarly like very overwhelmed, like when I left the theater and was overwhelmed about it, like 
for a while I like I couldn't articulate how I felt to to write a review on Letterboxd. So I just like went with the, the Michelle Williams quote from the trailer where she's like, movies are amazing <laughs> because yes, movies are amazing. And that's how I felt about it. But as I've been thinking about it since then, I think the thing I loved the most about it is how honest he is about how messy and flawed and awful people can be and are, and yet you still love them anyway. And you're that like relationships can be difficult and relationships take a lot of work and you don't always agree with the decisions that those people make, but you love them all the more for it. And your love for each other is like bigger and stronger than any of that. Um, And I think that that was like the most powerful takeaway of the film, but also back to movies are amazing. I think I saw a reviewer, maybe it was on Twitter after I saw some people saying like, wow, those, those films, you know, that they show that like, little Sammy makes, you know, of his like Boy Scout friends in the desert or ever like, wow, those are really good. Those are really impressive. And then he'd like take a minute back and be like, yeah, because actual Steven Spielberg directed them. <laughs> I think the the takeaway from the film that's really hit me is that you do get that scene with his father conceptualizing how brilliant he is as a young kid and like really being impressed by him. And yet not that long after he does have the conversation of, well, I mean, this is your hobby, right? Like, when are you going to get a, what What do you want to do for your life? Like, he can both, like, understand that his child is, like, a once-in-a-lifetime master and then also be like, no, but, like, a like a job. Like, what do you want to do for your job? And, like, that's sometimes how parents can be. And I think that that's definitely how Steven Spielberg felt he was treated in his childhood. And it was really well articulated on camera in this film. And just the, you know, the movies are amazing scene. I think that the one of the things that has really resonated with me is that this is a film that can have a very tender and technically beautiful scene as Michelle Williams dancing when they're on the camping trip and you're just so in awe of everything that's going on. And you get this like E.T moment that you're watching i'm going to use all my steven spielberg references Um, now's the time yeah where it is the world stops and you're just watching this thing that seems otherworldly not to use the world twice so you know what i'm trying to say and then you also get sammy making his his cowboy movie and it's fast paced and it's indiana jones and you're like he's teaching a kid to be an actor because he's already a director his special effects and the dust and the way they kick up the dust and everything and you're like oh this is like so like boom 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 and that's the fun of making movies and then you also get the very last scene that i just sat in awe for like three minutes and i was like oh he just he really just did that. And it's when he gets the piece of advice about the the horizon and the camera like tilts at the very last second. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's fucking Steven Spielberg, <laughs> not just this kid. And those three tones all exist in the same movie. And that's so hard to do effectively and to make it feel like it's congruent. And he did it. That fourth wall break at the end, the fact that it is a fourth wall break, like in a Steven Spielberg movie, in a movie that's like nominated for Oscars and stuff. And, and that's what he's doing. He's winking and nodding at us, the audience. It was amazing. It was so good. Like every time I take a photo, I'm thinking of David Lynch yelling at me and like through a <laughs> Where's cigar. The horizon? <laughs> Where's the horizon? Exactly. It's just, it's so good. And uh, yeah, he fucking did it. And I'm very, 
impressed and just so thrilled that he nailed it. Love it. Well, um, speaking of uh, Horizons in a way, um, we're going to move on uh, to my number four and Maya's number one and perhaps the world's number one and like the apex for two-way football. Uh, Maya, what is your favorite movie of 2022? I mean, look, you know, we we had to do it. It's freaking Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, fuck it is. (laughs) I loved it every second of this movie i saw it in theaters three times i saw it in imax and i think i saw it in like prime or whatever that weird thing is that amc offers and i saw it again in like a regular theater with friends i don't think i've ever seen a movie three times in theaters in my life that's just how much i loved this thing i think that top gun maverick ultimately like reinvented like what it means to do a successful sequel but like, holy shit, Top Gun Maverick was so good. I was so impressed by the way that it functioned as like a big, loud, crazy screaming blockbuster that was so expertly emotional at the same time that it had just the right amount of like nostalgia beats while also having like edge of your seat, terrifying action, incredible performances from Tom Cruise and Miles Teller and Glenn Powell and Jennifer Connelly. That's what going to the movies is about, is just having this much fun about literally like clutching your armrest because you're so nervous about what's going to happen. But like the next minute you're laughing out loud and then at the end of the movie you're crying and then the guy at the like three rows in front of you literally puts his fist up in the air because he's so freaking pumped about what happened at the movies. And I was like, me too, dude, me too. I just loved Top Gun Maverick so, so much. This movie is just like one big hell yeah, brother, in, in like the best way. Yeah, brother. <laughs> Top Gun Maverick. Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah, brother. Put that on a t-shirt. I'll wear it oh. tomorrow. And we're always saying like After Sun is not manipulative. Like Top Gun Maverick is incredibly manipulative in the best way. Mm-hmm. It knows exactly what it's doing. It knows exactly what it's playing with. You know, Maverick just did some pilot shit. Of course they were going to have Val Kilmer show up. Of course they were going to play Danger Zone. Of course they were going to do a slow motion version of Great Balls of Fire with the Tom Cruise face and a little bit of tears. Of course they were going to have Tom Cruise running. Like I actually laughed whenever at like toward the last half of the film that it's like, oh, here's the Tom Cruise run. And yet it fucking rocked. I like I don't know what more you ever want out of a movie than a director friggin' sticking cameras in like those real planes and sending actors up to do it but also like giving you the most beautiful people ever in like the most beautiful part of the of california being amazing the original top gun was like in my bloodstream like for as like long as i can remember um it is the one good volleyball scene in cinema um (laughs) and as a volleyball family as a member of a volleyball family obviously that is important the original top gun is is campy Mm -hmm. it's almost plotless it's silly um but top gun maverick is like a good movie and i and like there's a real story to it and like maybe there's not character arcs but like it, it's just a good fun time of watching movies I, I said before that tar is probably the movie that like we'll look back in 10 years be like that was the most excellent film of the year but i do think top gun maverick is going to be the movie that when you're in a room full of people and you're like top gun maverick there's going to be like three people that are like oh top gun maverick dude like that's a good one. I don't know how many rooms you guys are going to be in where someone's like, oh, Top Gun Maverick, dude. But 
most likely that like I feel like that's the reaction that's going to be generated from this movie. I will be in a lot of those rooms because I will be the one who's saying, oh, Top Gun Maverick, dude. <laughs> Hell yeah, brother. Amanda, how'd you like this movie? I liked Top Gun Maverick. It was not in my top movies, but I also went to it and like I left and I was like, I get it. Like I, <laughs> there's no yum to yuck because I didn't dislike it, but I I am not in the like camp of, Fuck yeah, this movie's the best thing I've ever seen. But I also am like, I'm so glad that camp exists because that camp is correct. It's the opposite of Barbarian. I knew exactly <laughs> what was going to happen next at every single moment of the film. But at no time was I like, ugh, you know, what? It's so like, it was gripping and it was great and it was perfect. And it's why movies need to be made. And it's why people need to spend a fucking billion dollars on movies to do it right and to send actors into space and like do whatever they need to do because like this is what you get and not every movie needs to have like a hook like a thing like a twist it can just be a fucking movie and like that's what they made and I am so happy about that and I'm amped it exists and uh yeah Top Gun man hell yeah and Gaga got another Oscar nomination which also rules and she came out with like very fun like military themed merch <laughs> that i almost bought <laughs> yeah i don't is this is this a part of uh after we gush about top gun that we we have to acknowledge the like very heavy us military propaganda that that are these two films <laughs> hey it's only the second most republican movie of the year shout out to dog shout out uh, to <laughs> dog. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, it's dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we appreciate Tom Cruise for pulling up to movie theaters and being like, ladies and gentlemen, this is your savior speaking. Yeah, like basically. The only thing that was yeah. wrong with that movie is that they cut out so much Manny Jacinto content <laughs> that I could have had. Yeah. Because that is the world's most handsome man. And I love him. Also, this movie could have been gayer. Uh, like the first one. <laughs> Way gayer. <laughs> it's 2022. Like, what are we doing? So we're going to go from that rip-roaring movie <laughs> to my number one. <laughs> Once again, uh, my number one movie of 2022. Big surprise for me um, was After Yang. This is Koganada's second movie after Columbus came out in, I believe, 2016-17. Uh, um, this movie is another film starring Colin Farrell. It's a movie I generally liked on my first watch. On rewatch, I think I rewatched this movie after I had a long flight and I couldn't sleep and it was like 5 a.m. And I'm like, this is a quiet movie. Like, let me run this back. And it, I feel like certain themes opened up in a, ra- in a radiant way. It's a very cathartic film. It contains some of my favorite scenes of the year. It's like the opening scene. One of the most fun things you'll see this year. There's a conversation that Colin Farrell has with Yang, who is the android, about tea and and Colin Farrell impersonates Werner Herzog, which is amazing. I love any kind of film that's like appreciate the small moments of life, but the score, the filmmaking, this takes place in a future, but like a future that feels tangible in a way and not like flying cars and whizzing this and that, but more just like slight technological advancements. And yet to tell a story about you know, what it means to be Asian, what it means to be a person, what it means to be a father, what it means to, you know, play all these certain roles and the ways those things can shift. Um, I think this movie is is, is really special. It, it's so quiet and so kind of 
methodical in the way it goes about these things but there's certain set pieces that i think are really just like heartwarming and heartbreaking all at once and and uh i just really appreciated this film i caught this one like right before christmas um and really loved it too it didn't make it on my list but i was also like really blown away by it and i know it's like kind of cliche to be like oh all movies are about love and all movies are about family but like that was like my big takeaway from this one and i really loved what it was saying about love and what it was saying about family. I, I don't know if it was because I was sad about how I was spending Christmas alone uh, this year and not with family, but I, I was like incredibly moved by it. And like you said, what a year for, for Colin Farrell, those could not be like two more different performances. And he's so phenomenal in both. I was really impressed by him and definitely really impressed by this movie. I think on the other end of the, make more movies like this movie spectrum of Top Gun Maverick is after Yang. This movie was thoughtful. It was intentional. It was light, but also incredibly heavy. And it featured few actors, but them really doing it. And I was gripped by this movie more or less from the very beginning um, we're going to talk about our favorite scenes of the year, and it's only on one of our lists, but I know we all have it in our hearts as the best scene of the year. In the year of Haley Lou Richardson, I'm also glad this movie came out, too, to like balance her White Lotus performance, which was also very fun, and remind people the range she has as an actress. That was another yeah. big takeaway for me. And I, I enjoyed this film, too, as a a pair with Columbus, because there's a scene in Columbus one of the characters asks about what moves them, like caring about what moves you. And I feel like this is in conversation of like answering that, like what is moving within life? It's in these stolen glances or watching someone enjoying a concert or, you know, watching a family lineup for a photo and these very small moments that they're not the, they're not going Mach 10, but like sometimes when you're going at a glacial pace, like that's just as moving. I love the fact that Haley Lee Richardson works with Koganada. I think that's going to be a special um, kind of partnership there. Uh, I'm in the bag for Haley Lee Richardson. I'll, I'll just root for her in uh, any and all movies that she's in and projects that she's in. And again, I, I do think this is going to be the forgotten performance from Colin Farrell this year. Like he was also the Penguin, um, and it <laughs> was like incredible as the Penguin. I wish there was like an Oscar for like, it's not best actor. It's not best, like. You want an MVP. Yeah. Award. Yeah. This year, like if he doesn't win best actor and it goes to fucking Elvis or it goes to Brendan Fraser, I want him to be like the movie's winner of the year. <laughs> like last year, I thought the actor of the year would have been Adam Driver because he had Annette, the last duel in House of Gucci. <laughs> Annette. Yeah, like a film MVP every year. And this year I would give it to Colin Farrell. It's been, yeah, truly a great year for him. I, I'm happy um, that he was in all these different kinds of projects and really lent himself to these projects. Like this is a real upgrade in a, a way, like in, in scope, in cast for Koganata. And I think he kind of sets things up to be, you know, continuously exciting as he continues his journey as a filmmaker. So also shout out to Mitski. It always comes back to Mitski. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. That was my number one movie of the year. But uh, finally, we're going to get to my number two, Mai's number two, Amanda's number one, and perhaps the world's number one. We'll see come March. Everything, everywhere, all at once. 
Amanda, why don't you start? This was uh, your number one of the year. I might cry talking about this movie. Um, <laughs> this is the movie I've seen the most this year. I saw it twice in theaters. Everything, everywhere, all at once is unlike any movie I've ever seen, and I have seen thousands of movies. I could take six different paths talking about why this movie is my favorite movie of the year. It is the action, it is the humor, it is the this, the whole narrative of the actors, it is the representation, it's the correct use of multiverse after we've just been inundated with so much multiverse content that doesn't make sense and is really lacking in purpose. And it's also the mother-daughter connection. There were so many times seeing it for the first time that I thought to myself, I can't believe this is happening. And not in a like, wow, that was really funny or that was really like that action sequence was really good. I was just like, I can't believe all of these things that are so good are all in one film at the same time. There's like six times it could have ended. And when it like really cemented was when they did the the end. And then it's not the movie, but it's the movie within the movie. And then we're talking about Michelle Yeoh as an actress but not like it's the character, but her and it's scenes from her as an actress. But it's just it's so multifaceted. And again, that doesn't even touch on the heart of the film, which is the biggest takeaway of the movie. I am so impressed by this movie. I'm glad that it's getting all of the love it deserves. Everybody I know seems to be on board that this should win the best movie of the year. And even if it doesn't win best picture, I think everyone knows this is the best movie of the year. And that's good enough for me. Yeah, I saw this one in theaters twice. Also, I saw it the first time I saw it was with my sister and my dad, um, which was a really interesting experience because my mom was they were all in New York visiting me and my mom stayed home. Um, and played Mahjong with her friends. And the three of us went out and saw that movie. And it was, like I said, this is a big year for me watching movies uh, as about daughters of Asian immigrant moms as a daughter of an Asian immigrant mom. And that was the biggest takeaway for me with this one is ultimately like that relationship. And it, that's not the only relationship that this movie is about, but that's obviously one of the the kind of emotional cruxes of the film. And it really, really hit home, especially the second time I watched it. I think it's it's so phenomenal that in a movie that is doing the absolute most at its core, it's like so simple and so honest and so deep and so real. And it, it was just like a knockout blew me away kind of, kind of film. It can be both the loudest movie I saw and the quietest movie I saw at the same time. And I think from like the scene where the Michelle Yeoh and Stephanie Hsu are yelling at each other in the parking lot to the very end credits, I was bawling. This movie has multiple fight scenes with sex toys. Yeah. (laughs) And it's the leader in Oscar nominations. Yeah, this movie is athletic. It's thrilling. The performances are winning. Um, Stephanie Hsu, Kihi Kwan are awesome, but like I don't. Jamie Lee Curtis is amazing, but I just we can't get it twisted, man. This no. is Michelle Yeoh. Yes, um, I don't think this movie works without Michelle Yeoh. Mm-hmm. I I think her comedic timing, her physicality, the heart that she can put into, like the yearning heart where she wants to be like a better mother, but like still just falls back on these trends because of her own like 
trauma that she's had in her life. And then also this movie's just fucking funny. Yeah, I, I, I do so think good. it's particularly pointed toward a person. I, I think a lot of the humor like really is just nailed on to like when we grew up. Um and and even just in the timing of the humor and in the kind of humor where it's it's gags, it's silly, it's slapstick, but also it's intelligent, it's meta, um, it is all of these different things, and it's chaotic, and yet, you know, you can even analyze it a little bit about, like, the bagel versus the googly eye and how those things, like, nihilism versus the opposite of nihilism. What's the fucking opposite of nihilism? <laughs> Purpose? <laughs> the weight of doing taxes and laundry with a person for the rest of your life. It's easy to, like, kind of feel corny about, like, how important or how endearing or heartwarming this movie is but i think it is that and i think it is unabashedly earnest i'm uh, like gonna cry <laughs> earnest in a way that there's a certain kind of person or or like thought where it's like you're being earnest but then you kind of make a joke on the side to kind of relieve that pressure a little bit and it continue it makes the jokes it makes the jokes it makes the jokes but at the end or also part in the middle like it strips away everything and is like this is what this movie is about it's about these two people this relationship or even the relationship with michelle yo stephanie Shu, and also michelle yo and kiki guan or also michelle yo and, and and her father and what it means to live up to your most potential but also what it means to not live up to any of your potential and yet maybe how much you still matter within all of that it's a sensory overload and it bowls you over but then it also catches you it blows you up and catches you and i think it's not for everybody I get it when people say that maybe this movie is too much or too many gags or too corny or those or people are wrong. I don't support those people. <laughs> Zach might, <laughs> but I but I do think for those of us that it hits with, and I, obviously it hits with a lot of people. It's the movie of the year. The way the Fablemans is about this is what your parents are like as people. Everything, everywhere, all at once did that ten times better. She is struggling to be a good mother but also a good daughter but also a good wife and a good business owner but also what does she want and just a person in the world and is upset with how her life turned out but knows like if she had made this one decision 20 years ago everything would be different and that is natural when you grow up and you think about things differently and you look at your life and be like, oh, maybe I should have like taken that job or I should have like maybe said yes to that date. Like how different would my life be? And maybe I wouldn't be like drowning in paperwork and living in a tiny apartment above a laundry place that everyone is so obnoxious and I hate it here. But also maybe it would be maybe you would be a rock. Everything is like so coincidental, but also purposeful in this film. And there isn't a scene I think about, even if it is as ridiculous as Hot Dog Fingers, or if it is as good as the flashback to her deciding to go with her husband and leave her parents home. Like both of those scenes mean so much to me <laughs> at the same time. And again, I like couldn't believe after I saw it that all of these things existed in one space. I don't know that there's a more like aptly titled film of the year. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I think we can cap this portion there. Like those are our top fives, everything everywhere all at once. It wins our best picture of the year. Let's go to some other categories so we can shout out some more, some more movies or some of the same movies. 
And first, we're going to talk about uh, our favorite performances of the year. Some of these we've touched on, some of these we haven't. Um, but Maya, let's start with you. What were uh, some of your favorite performances of the year? I think my like number one favorite performance of the year was Gabriel LaBelle in The Fablemans. He played Sammy, a.k.a. like the stand-in for young Steven Spielberg. And I thought he was just the most like captivating and engaging, honestly, performer in that movie. Um, obviously, Michelle Williams and uh, is getting, you know, a lot of attention and rightfully so. But I spent the whole film just being in awe of this kid. I can't imagine what it must be like to play them one of the most iconic directors in the world while being directed by that director and that immense pressure that this young guy must have felt to bring the story to life. And I think he was absolutely phenomenal. Um, I'm so excited to see anything and everything he does next. He's a short king too. He's five foot four. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> we love Gabriel Lovell. Um, just a couple other like really quick ones, kind of on the flip side of Gabriel Lovell. One I really loved was Rachel Sennett in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. She is, I think, like the quickest rising like comedy queen of our generation. She's so, so, so funny in that movie. I could mention like at least four different monologues she does in the film, um, but her <laughs> talking uh, about um, Lee Pace as a Libra Moon is probably my favorite one of them all. <laughs> her comedic timing is phenomenal. Her ability to play like awkwardness and insecurity while also like projecting the like confidence that so many people use to mask that. She's so good. She's so funny. Um, and I, I just adore her. Uh, the last performance I'll mention really quick that I loved um, is from a movie I know Zach you're shouting out a little later, but Daryl McCormick in Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. He plays the titular Leo Grand in a two-hander. It's just him and Emma Thompson. And first of all, no, I'll say second of all. So first of all, he gives such an incredibly like quiet and grounded performance that feels had like real depth to it and he's he's so captivating and so engaging and he has to be because he's playing a male escort and you know the second part of that is that he's just absolutely stunning to look at he also has he has an amazing accent like everything about him i'm just all in um he was really incredible in that film and i think like acting opposite emma thompson is it's a big ask for a lot of people and he absolutely crushes it he carries that movie just as much as she does um and i i really loved him i think it might be the hottest early or breakthrough kind of performance since jude law in talented mr ripley whoa that's a big claim <laughs> i'm gonna have to think on that one <laughs> we'll do a follow-up pod yeah yeah that's good though i like that that yeah. shout out <laughs> Uh, Amanda, <laughs> what are some of your favorite performances of the year? I'm going to second everything Maya said about uh, Gabriel LaBelle and the Fablemans. And I've talked uh, a bit about Stephanie Hsu from Everything Everywhere All at Once. I am so thankful that she got an Oscar nomination. I just thought it was an atrocity that she was not recognized through so much of the award season. The part that I cried the most in Everything Everywhere All at Once is when she's in the car and like it's the parking lot scene, but it's upon her saying, I'm just tired. Yes. I literally, I will cry right now. Like we have to move on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. She's, she's incredible. So she, she is winning. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's, before we all start crying, uh, Amanda, what are, what are other <laughs> performances you loved? Okay. Um, I put this on my list just because this is an actress I haven't vibed with before and I know I'm wrong. And 
But this was the first time I saw her in a movie where I was like, I get it. And it was Jennifer Lawrence in Causeway. I saw Jennifer Lawrence in a completely different light for the first time in her whole career. So I had to give out a shout out to that. I'm interested to see what she will do more of now that she is grown up and is in this different point in her life and also like what roles will come her way. I'm not fully on board, but I do appreciate that people can grow up and become different people and I am interested to see what she does next. But my number one performance of the year is Mia Goth in Pearl. I can't talk enough about the fact that she has the biggest face I've ever seen and that's a compliment. Like her face is incredible and I am so lucky to live in a world where Ty West and Mia Goth are going to make three movies together that are all connected. And I've also never related to anything more than her screaming, I'm a star, and sobbing really heavily. X is another movie I'm going to talk about later that she's in. It's Ty West. And that movie is a great movie. And Pearl is just Mia Goth at 300% turbo the whole fucking time. I I do feel like the internet uh, coordinated Mia Goth this year, rightly so. I'm happy that you finally turned around on J-Law. Um, as a person who has supported her uh, throughout her whole career. That's true. <laughs> Some of my favorite performances to dovetail on Causeway. Causeway is pretty much a two-hander. Um, yeah. And that other hand is Brian Tyree Henry, who has been one of my favorite actors um, for years now. That's like the coldest take ever. But he, I feel like, uh, is such a backbone um, in Causeway. He's backbone for Jennifer Lawrence's character in the story. But he's also just... Uh, this really grounded performance. I, I I don't know if there's many things more powerful than Brian Tyree Henry monologuing mm-hmm. in a film. I'm glad he got his Oscar nomination for this. I do think it's like a retroactive one for his uh, work in If Beale Street Could Talk. The energy and the empathy that he can generate in a performance, even in a movie that's silly, like The Outside Story, or it was this like 2020 uh, kind of goofy comedy that wasn't great, but he was in it. Um, I, I love Brian Tyree Henry. I'll watch anything and everything uh, he's in. Um, another performance that I thought was really multifaceted and special was Regina Hall in Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, which is a, a pretty funny movie and a pretty silly satire and it, like a mockumentary style. So your mileage may vary. Sterling K. Brown's great in that movie too, but I do think Regina Hall gives such a special performance because she's comedically amazing and also like holds the dramatic weight of the film she plays Sterling k brown's wife uh and is basically like the church's first lady and uh there's a scene where she has to wear like mime makeup <laughs> and it's played for laughs but then like i don't know if it's a 10 minute scene like in the eighth minute it, it's also the dramatic climax of the film it's nuts that she pulls it off with the mime makeup and it speaks all to like just i think her ability so um i, I think that is going to be one of the more underappreciated performances uh, of the year Another one is uh, Lashana Lynch in The Woman King, uh, incredibly winning. It's tailor-made for an actor to like be the star because she is kind of like the supporting character, right-hand man to Viola Davis's central character, but she does it with such vigor and energy. Like she's physically imposing and also like charming, and it, it it's made for her. And I, I think in the many takeaways of that film, uh, it was my favorite one. She was so good. Yeah. And then another person who kind of had that same energy was Amber Midthunder in Prey. Uh, I've never seen a Predator movie before, but I did watch Prey. And I think what Amber Midthunder did in holding like the entire center of that film um, was amazing. I can't wait for her to probably play an X-Men at some point. And then lastly, speaking of X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> what a transition. She deserves my more respect f- than that. <laughs> 
in my favorite cameo of the year is Sophie Turner in Do Revenge. I don't do cocaine. <laughs> Thank you, Sophie Turner. Thank you. Thank you. What I a agree. gift. I'm noticing between our favorite movies of the year and our favorite performances of the year, this was a year for the ladies. We had a lot of, like, I couldn't imagine putting together the best actress and best supporting actress categories this year. They just fucking hit it out of the park. Everyone did so good. Women. Women. They're talking. (laughs) (laughs) There was two movies this year that had to do with, uh, like, female speaking. Finally, we've been silenced for too long. There's been so few movies centering women that there's two very generic titles available. But the next question to, is anyway. like, is anyone listening? Who's listening? You better be listening. <laughs> Open your goddamn ears. I'm ready for the follow up. Men listening. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the Sophie Turner uh, cameo is probably one of the most unhinged scenes um, of 2022, but. Really lovely. Let's talk about our favorite scenes now. Maya, let's start with you. What were some of your favorite scenes of the year? The first two I'm going to mention, we've kind of touched on already. Um, first of all, I, I just want to mention the like opening dance credits in After Yang, where the whole family yes. and a whole bunch of other Correct. families are doing this like incredible choreographed dance with like all of these insane like laser lighting changes and really cool like fun music and everyone's crushing it. Like Colin Farrell again. Never thought I'd like watch him do a dance number like that but I did and he was great it was so fun I was just talking to a friend about it like last week and I was like I think that the opening credits of After Yang like low-key changed my life like why don't all movies start that way it was it has so nothing to fun. do with the movie it's okay, so good so counterpoint I think it's great because it world builds hella quick it's like yeah that's true I think I texted Zach immediately after I started it. I was like well that might be my favorite scene of the year yeah. <laughs> it's so much fun Another one that's like less fun, still incredible. Um, <laughs> the rock scene, which Amanda mentioned briefly in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Again, yes. like not going to harp on it because at, at one or two where all three of us might start crying. <laughs> but it's just this incredible moment in the film. Again, that is so freaking much. It is full sensory overload. And then all of a sudden, two of your main characters are rocks and it's pure silence. I rewatched it last week before I wrote it down on this list, just that scene on YouTube. And I forgot how quiet it is. I literally was like turning up the volume on my computer. I was like, is something wrong? And I was like, oh no, that is the whole point. And you just read their text and everything they're going through. And it's so emotional. It's so cathartic. And it's it's like really incredible. Uh, my third scene, this was like a scene in a movie that it was just like it happened and I started crying <laughs> because I was so <laughs> overwhelmed <laughs> by how beautiful I like, literally could cry. <laughs> and the payoff of what I'm crying is so stupid. <laughs> no, but all respect here, um, my like favorite scene of the whole year is like the hour-long section in the middle of Avatar The Way of Water where it's just like the middle kid meeting the whale thing named Pyacon and they're like swimming through the ocean and having this like beautiful connection <laughs> and I was like oh James Cameron this is incredible <laughs> and I'm literally crying right now <laughs> the real way of water are the tears coming from Maya's face talking about it's this tr- I just listen I'm a whale girly I went whale watching <laughs> a couple years ago with my family and did this when we saw two whales. <laughs> so 
<laughs> it is the best scene in the movie, though. Like, you're absolutely correct. It's just, like, so, <laughs> it's so beautiful and emotional and touching. And you're just watching these two characters who have experienced being outcasts. And it's just, like, James Cameron doing doing his damn best. And <laughs> I really loved it. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to cry about any of these scenes, but they were special to me. Um, one of them is the dance scene in RRR. Um, have you guys seen RRR? I, it's like my number one thing that I want to see that I haven't yet. It might be the best action movie, the best dance movie, the best friendship movie of the year. And the dance scene shouldn't work, and yet it does. It's so random, uh, but it really speaks to like the maximalism and the winningness of that movie. Do yourself a favor and watch RRR. It, it's thrilling. Another one on the kind of the other end of the spectrum, uh, which was like just more impressive. And uh, this movie was probably my winner for I admired it more than I enjoyed it is in the Northmen. There's the scene where before they raid the village, they're doing this like ritual where they like unleash the beast. And it really just takes advantage of every bit of Alexander Skarsgård's six foot five ripped physicality. It's a movie I needed to exhale from like every other scene Mm -hmm. where I was just like, oh, man, we're still going. But I do think uh, the craft around like the Northmen was so visceral and athletic in a way that I didn't always love. But I do think that scene really captures like how in the mud this movie was and that character was, which I I feel like the Northmen kind of just kind of got forgotten in a way. It was like one of the movie events of like the first quarter of the year and then kind of fizzled. But maybe it's because, you know, it's not my favorite movie, but that was the far and away best scene of a movie I liked but really wanted to love. I think that scene was like the apex of like the movie I thought it was going to be. Yeah, and it happens in like the first 40 minutes. It's it's very masculine, but I, I think you're correct. Like that scene was the perfect summation of the movie I thought it was going to be. And then my other one I wanted to shout out was in She Said when they're about to publish the story and they're all huddled around the computer And they're just reading it through Mm -hmm. and they're about to publish it. And they're like, one more read through. It's not the most thrilling journalism movie, but I do think that that scene, I was like, I've, I've never been a part of an investigative story, but I felt that like need to read it through one more time just to make sure was like the most exciting journalism set piece that had nothing to do with like the sources. I think we talked about this in our journalism movies podcast where it's hard to say like, don't press the mouse button is not as exciting as like stop the presses. But I do think it captured like the thrill that still exists in like the digital journalism world we were in. Amanda, what is, I don't know, your one of your favorite scenes, as many of your favorite scenes, What, what what's going on? What, what do you have for this category? So I'm excited to eventually rage a full on civil war within this podcast over this movie, Babylon. Um, because I loved it and Zach hated it. Uh, <laughs> and, I'm in the uh, middle. <laughs> but this was the scene that I think about the most from this movie. It's I think it is the summation of what the movie is all about. Um, and it is the scene in Babylon where all of the movies are being filmed at the exact same time in like old Hollywood style out in the desert. And it's just pure chaos, but it's so artful at the same time and I think about it a lot it was adrenaline and I loved it and I thought it was great and I love movies that's I don't know how else to articulate it with because there's there's so many things going on it's like hard to tell you what the scene is about but 
the energy of that scene has really resonated with me. I thought that part was so electric and you could see why every single person there, Diego Calva's character, Margot Robbie's character, Brad Pitt's character, is so like addicted to what movie making can be and sometimes was. Like you watch that happen and I'm like, absolutely, I want to be there too. I want to be making films. This feels like the most magical, exciting world it possibly could be. It really like it sets up the promise that all of those characters buy into before you get to like the eventual downfall despite not loving this movie i did like certain scenes in the the movie and this was one of them i do think it caught like you said that thrill of nailing what movies are and all the elements that come with putting this shit together um and the magic sometimes is like really haphazard and duct tape and like about some stranger driving really quickly to the camera store so they can get a shot that they look into I, I do think that was probably one of my two to three favorite scenes of the film and, and like really speaks to what I wanted more of from the movie. What are our biggest surprises? Maya, what was a movie you really were impressed and had a different takeaway than expected? Well, speaking of like, Zach and I talk about this a lot, like Zach is fully in like the Haley Lou Richardson bag. And I feel like I'm on the other side of the coin of fully in the Zoe Deutsch bag. Um, I'm like on a project to watch everything she's ever been in and I'm making good progress. And so a really big surprise for me this year, not that she is surprising, but she was in a Christmas movie that came out this year called Something from Tiffany's. And I love movies and I love a rom-com, but I really struggle with Christmas movies. I think especially like the hallmarkification of Christmas movies has led to really flat looking films that have like the cheesiest stories ever and like often actors with no chemistry and like very little emotional payoff. And I don't like watching them, but something from Tiffany's was the exact opposite of that. It, first of all, was absolutely beautiful. Obviously like Zoe Deutsch is stunning. I'm blanking on his name now, but the, the man that she's opposite against also very good looking, very charismatic and charming. And the, the film held, had like a real story. It had real stakes, it was set in New York at Christmas time, which of course I love. And it was just like exactly what I wish every single like holiday romantic movie could be. I also was like really surprised by, not really surprised, but pleasantly surprised by Fire Island. Like speaking again of, of rom-coms, this was the Joel Kim Booster, Bowen Yang, like LGBTQ Pride and Prejudice remake um, that landed on Hulu this summer, I believe. I thought everything in Fire Island like landed. I thought there were some really incredible performances in there. And it's like it's really funny and it's a good time. Like I too want to like go to an island with my friends and like maybe fall in love with someone uh while I'm at it. Yeah, so I really enjoyed that one. And lastly, I'll just mention Werewolf by Night, a MCU kind of standalone little moments uh that hit Disney Plus is three people who really love movies. This was such an incredible homage to like the like 30s and 40s classic horror, which is not a genre I actually know very much about. And I'm excited to watch like the original Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and so many of the things that they were like making references to. Um, but Werewolf by Night was like actually good, is really worth checking out. Again, is just on Disney Plus. Maybe the best thing Marvel did all year. Zach, what were some surprises for you? We mentioned it earlier really quickly, but uh, good luck to you, Leo Grand, Daryl McCormick, and Emma Thompson. Uh, dramedy, 
uh, I thought was really lovely. And the chemistry between the two was really, um, really beautiful. And then uh, my other surprise of the year was uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. I think I've shared this take before. I don't like Shrek. Yeah. You told I'm me that. With you. I think I just saw it too many times in elementary, middle, and high school. Like it was always just the go-to movie that we would watch in school. So I got over it really quickly. But I had no interest in watching Puss in Boots. But then I kept hearing it was like better than you think. I watched the trailer and I'm like, oh, the animation style is a little different. Um, I'd like to shout out Into the Spider Verse for like kind of uh, revamping or reinvigorating an animation style that Puss in Boots uses as well. Um, and I did not have Puss in Boots to the Last Wish as one, a film that would uh, make me consider my own mortality and two, be the best movie that Florence Pugh was involved in in 2022. It was a great time. So uh, that was uh, probably my biggest, like true surprise of the year was Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Amanda, what were your biggest surprises of the year? I think my truest biggest surprise was Causeway. I already talked about why I really liked it, but this was 0% on my radar. I threw it on just because it was on Apple TV and I was really captivated by it. And then a movie I I knew I would like, but I didn't think was going to be that good, but it ended up being incredible, um, was X, the first Ty West Mia Goth film that came out this year. And it is truly almost shot for shot, an amalgamation of Boogie Nights and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which like that's all I needed to know to see this movie because those are two of my favorite films. And it was like, actually a very well produced movie and i was just really thrilled that they did it those are our biggest surprises but um, we've, we've shouted out a lot of movies here but um is there any movies that you guys want to either give some more love to or kind of throw in here that we haven't gotten to talk about um amanda i'll start with you the ones i included x that i just talked about bodies 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 i think it was like the most fun movie i saw all year there was not a single moment where I wasn't having a blast. And Babylon was on my top five for a while. And I eventually moved it off once I saw Banshees of Inishirin. And I really thought about putting it back on for something else. But I eventually decided to keep it in my honorable mentions. Damien Chazelle's done a lot of interviews about it. And he said that it's a love letter to cinema, but a hate letter to Hollywood. And I think that's like a perfect summary of what this movie is all about. I thought that this was Margot Robbie is a fucking movie star. Let her shine. Let her rip. Put the camera on her at all times and let her do whatever she wants. Amp it up to 300. Spinal tap that shit to 11. Like, make it happen. And you didn't agree, which is totally fine. No, um, no. So, so okay. The, the <laughs> my problems with the movie have nothing to do with Margot Robbie. They don't even have anything to do with Diego Calva. They have everything to do with the fact that it like reminded me of better movies. It was like, oh, here's a here's a bunch of movies that are better than this and Avatar. Um, <laughs> That's I was like, Damien, <laughs> what? That I literally like almost like stood up out of my chair. <laughs> like, the fact that that was in that wild montage that that was somehow like the longest lingered on shot. <laughs> oh, it was it was for sure was again. Like, all of those blue people. In this movie. Um, Maya, what were some of your movies that uh, honorable mentions that you wanted to just uh, get in at the last second here? Banshees of Inisherin was another one that like sometimes it was on my list and sometimes it wasn't. I thought that was like really phenomenal. My other honorable mention, which like is like maybe borderline also a surprise, could have gone in that category is Bones and All. Yes. Um, this is a Luca Guadagnino, Timothy Chalamet cannibal movie. And again, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, I'm a, I've been on a big journey about what I can, learning about what I actually can handle and the things that kind of fall under the scary movie genre. 
And it turns out body horror is not an issue for me. And so I guess I'm all in on a love story that's about two young cannibals. <laughs> I thought this movie, like, first of all, like, minus cannibalism parts, although they were in their own way too, this movie's visually stunning like it like reminds you just how lovely like middle america looks and can be and it's like a a part of the country that often is not featured in movies and i think it it felt like really honest without being like demeaning or putting anything down and i mean taylor russell is so good and the two of them i thought their chemistry really worked and ultimately just like the idea that this movie is is wanting to find someone who just who loves you for all of you, bones and all. I'm all in on that shit. Um, and I, I really actually like thought this movie was incredible. And I hope more people can kind of like brace themselves a little bit for the cannibalism, maybe look down, but but buy into to this film because it really took me by surprise this year. Zach, what are some of your honorable mentions? I'm going to smuggle some quick ones in here. We didn't shout out Glass Onion at all in the pod. And I think we all enjoyed that movie. Marcel the Shell with the Shoes On is a movie that really exists. Um, shout out to Jenny Slate. I uh, also want to shout out Kimmy, uh, Steven Soderbergh, once again, giving us a movie on HBO Max that nobody paid attention to, but ruled. And then two that I actually want to give some time to, Devotion, which is a Jonathan Majors, Glenn Powell, Korea War movie that is not Top Gun Maverick. But I do think this movie is going to be one of the underappreciated gems of the year that we're going to look back in like five years and be like, oh my God, like Glenn Powell and Jonathan Majors were in a movie together um, playing pilots and their performances are really strong. I think J.D. Dilliard is a, a interesting director. He made a movie called Slight in 2016 that I wanted to like more, but you could just tell he really knows how to make a movie. There's some flying sequences here that... Even in the year of Top Gun Maverick, I think are some stuff that I really haven't seen in this kind of movie. I would beg everyone to go see it. Lastly, Anonymous Club, which is a documentary about Courtney Barnett I had mentioned earlier on the pod this year. And in a world of like self-indulgent, self-edited, self-produced music documentaries that we get so much of, I do think this one is kind of not a full counterpoint, but a good juxtaposition to that. It's a fun look at an artist dealing with struggling with and embracing their artistry and their role as a celebrity and their limits that they feel when they're trying to explain their message of their art uh in a way that isn't just like their medium um i'm also in the bag for courtney barnett so like yes. you know what am i gonna do hell yeah all right guys we did it Woo. uh we, we watched all these movies um and we're gonna rage about them forever uh, I'm sure Amanda and I are going to debate about Babylon as much as we debate about, <laughs> I don't know, maybe any movie that's come out in the last five years. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> I'm so glad you guys like it as much as we do. The favorites of our of the year makes me so happy. You can always find a new episode of the Blind Spotters podcast on the second Tuesday of every month. On Valentine's Day, our February episode is coming out. We're swapping some Denzel films. We're going to try to start doing some more bonus shows. We're going to have our pod about our most anticipated movies of 2023 coming out soon. Um, in the meantime, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at BlindSpottersPod. You can follow us on Twitter at BlindSpotters. And you can follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Zach, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ZachPocklub. And as always, you can find me on Letterboxd. Maya, plug your handles. Um, I'm at Maya Petros on Twitter, on Instagram, and also on Letterboxd. Beautiful. Amanda, what about you? 
You can find me anywhere on the internet. Send me a compliment at Amanda Luberto. Great job. Great job, everybody. Yay. Hey, and remember, a podcast takes a lot of work, okay? You have to organize the guests. You have to do a Google Calendar. And you, you, you build a following. It takes a lot of fucking time. Bye. All hail Rachel Senate.